1: From WAB in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When you think of the 1980s, images of shoulder pads and women's power dressing may come to mind, along with remembering early cable TV, video games, and shopping malls. Also, Conservatism prevailed in social, economic, and political life. Art during that dynamic era is examined in new ways by the Atlanta-based scholar and curator Rosemary Cohane Earth. Her recent book is Painting in the 1980s, Reimagining the Medium. Later this hour, she joins us with Atlanta artist and Georgia State University professor Craig Drennan to explain the diverse styles, yet common themes that emerged during the 1980s. First, a groundbreaking new piece of music Explores the perspective of the LGBTQ+ plus community from Generation Z. The Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus will perform the world premiere of At Queer Z this Saturday evening in the First Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech. Donald Milton III is Artistic Director of the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus. He joins me now via Zoom. Don, welcome back to City Lights.
0: Thank you, Lois. It's, I just get so happy whenever I get to talk to
1: you. I <laughs> <Why>, thank you. <laughs> in 2019, the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus gave a concert commemorating the Stonewall riots or in observance of... The anniversary. While honoring the past, the music also revealed how far the LGBTQ plus community had come in 50 years. How does the music on this concert view the present and look to the future?
0: It's really spectacular. It's it's nice to see how many things have changed positively and yet how, how much work there is still still to do, you know, it's so beautiful getting to hear from a younger generation and learn from that space, things we wouldn't have thought about in in our own spaces. So this piece talks about how it feels right now to 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 be queer, and as even that definition of queerness is expanding in beautiful ways, it brings in the idea of of social media and how that has changed everyone's lives and our entire landscape. Uh, but it also has universal themes. You know, I think that these uh, the themes in this piece are universal for everyone, and yet. Are uh, They come out so much stronger in LGBTQ kids, like how to choose an extracurricular activity or, uh, you know, this new thing that all of our children have to do, like uh, active shooter training and, you know, difficult things like that. But also, uh, I think Generation Z, in its glory, is doing a better job than any generation before it of allowing people to... Be themselves to to not hide behind anything or cultural norms and just love what you love and be who you are and that's this this piece really embodies
1: what are the age demographics of gen z
0: so gen z are uh kids born around the late 90s to about 2010 ah Okay. okay, so kids who are in school now, just graduating from college, just starting life after college—that's about where, where Gen Z sits.
1: Is the composer Julian Hornick of the Gen Z?
0: Julian was Wait. twenty-four years old when he wrote oh, this piece. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Uh, Julian was was finishing his degree at uh, at Yale. His degree in music composition. When Tim Seelig, the director of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, met him at, a, at an event and they worked out putting together this, this consortium of choirs to commission this
1: piece. So is the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus part of that consortium? We are. It's, it's a consortium
0: of, of 12 choruses. And this is kind of a, a new thing in the in the choral world, probably the music world in general, over the last five, ten years, that commissioning music is expensive, which it should be. We should be paying talented young composers to write new things. And it's so much easier to, to put together uh, 12 people to pay for a major work than it is just one chorus to raise that money. So that's how this, this came together. It was supposed to be premiered in... June of 2020 uh, by the San Francisco, but that never happened. So we actually get to be the first chorus to ever premiere it. So I have a, a deep love for performing new music. I read a thing, uh, we may have talked about this before, actually, I read a thing in the Robert Shaw Reader when I was 20 years old. The Robert Shaw Reader is a collection of Robert Shaw's letters to the ASO Chorus. After that he would write every night after rehearsal, they would mimeograph them and mail them out the next day.
1: Dear people. Dear people, yeah,
0: exactly. And in one of his letters, he wrote that it is they were probably premiering a, a brand new work, and he said that a music director or conductor needs to figure out how much new music its audience can stand and perform that much plus 10%. And that just struck me And so, I mean, when I was 21 I started a choir that only did 20th and 21st century music And so commissioning is near and dear to my heart But commissioning is also gambling You're rolling the dice, you're hoping it's good And I've been part of commissioning projects that were fine I was part of one commissioning project that was bad and was never performed But this piece is so amazing i know it's going to be performed by choirs all over the country all over the world it's going to it's going to enter the repertoire and that's uh, a very high compliment for any commission
1: if you are just joining us this is city lights on i i'm lois wrights speaking with donald milton the about the world premiere of at queer z you mentioned some of the heavy topics explored in the songs that make up at Queer C, school shootings, being outed without consent, abandonment. Why did Julian Hornick want to address those serious issues within the context of this particular work?
0: Because they're the reality they are the reality of, of queer children growing up. The percentage of queer children who are kicked out of their house when they come out of the closet is still shockingly high. And there is a, a movement about that, that happening, that happening to a kid and then, then, and what leads to it's, it's terrible and it's sad and it's heavy and difficult. Now the, the, there isn't a movement about a school shooting. It is a movement about the specter of a school shooting. It's about the fact that every single day, our children have to worry about that, that active shooter training, I mean, uh, because we're a queer chorus, our whole organization did active shooter training a few years ago, and active shooter training is terrible. It It is necessary, I guess now, but it, it's terrorizing in itself. You do not leave feeling good or safe. You leave feeling bad. And our children are doing that every year. And that is a tragedy. So no, this song isn't about a school shooting. It's not about that. It's about the idea that they're about to have a training and that the heartbreaking line is, I always wear my running shoes, right? And that is a, a sad reality right now.
1: Oh, and thinking about the fact that this was written two years ago. Exactly. Or completed two years ago, and we've just witnessed the tragedy of New Valdate Texas. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there was the com- the conversation of, do we cut this movement? And my answer to things like that is that, you know, Queer choruses have been singing about things that need to be sung about for a long time, when other choruses wouldn't sing about them. And this is just the reality. And sometimes you have to sing about reality, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel good in that moment. But it's, it's, we never experienced that we had fire drills, we had tornado drills. And those are specters of, of what, what the earth is going to do, not what an individual might do. Not do. So mm. it's, a, it's a new thing. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, about people being outed. I mean, being outed has always been a, a fear of of members of the LGBTQ community for their whole lives. But it's a different story in a time of social media, you know, sometimes you would tell somebody and that person would tell somebody else and tell somebody else. And, and that is in itself terrible. But this is a song about a kid who tells somebody via text, and they screenshot it and put it on Instagram. And their their ability to to have to tell their own stories taken away and what that means because you can't take it back it can't come back anymore
1: is that the section of the piece ellipsis
0: no ellipsis is a very sweet movement um uh, that was mine is is a section about social media the, the the song the chorus says that was mine please just give it back to me because they took their truth and sent it away ellipsis uh, is a very sweet song but also a very modern idea that someone texts the boy that he likes him and then he sees that the boy is about to respond to those three dots at the bottom of the screen that show that somebody's typing but then the dots go away and there's no message so he knows that they're thinking about it but that they can't answer and there's a there's a real uh, sweetness in that anxiety that is also true to this moment, to this time, and to this generation.
1: On the other end
0: of that dot, dot, dot is a question mark.
1: Songs that make up this piece offer joy or hope.
0: There are many really sweet songs. One is uh, called Kate, and it's uh, about a about a young lesbian singing about every Saturday night they get to sit down and dream about Kate McKinnon from SNL because because it feels <laughs> like you that's just someone I've always known because they see themselves uh, that, that that points to a better representation, right? That when there is more representation and you see yourself in space, you feel that warmth and that glow, that movement's really fun and great. And uh, and the funniest moment of this piece is called extracurricular. And this is an age old story. The idea that how do I pick an extracurricular activity in school without being judged? It adds the idea that like, how can I pick an extracurricular that no one will know I'm gay?
1: So, oh there goes music theater exactly
0: exactly that, that that's definitely a joke in the song but it starts with uh, diving is gay for obvious reasons and then it goes through all these other da- dancing is gay for obvious reasons and then baseball is gay for obvious reasons football is gay for <laughs> obvious reasons and then it it turns so sweetly that like how can i exist in space without everybody knowing well, maybe I should just do the things I want to do, regardless of anyone's reaction, and be myself. And then closes, so where do I sign up to join the school play?
2: Tidying is
3: gay for obvious reasons. For obvious
2: reasons, dying is gay. I try not to
0: stare at the obvious reasons
3: obvious reasons are there on display. Dancing is gay for obvious reasons. For obvious reasons, dancing is gay.
2: And sure, I like dancing. Who doesn't like dancing? But put on those shoes
0: with metal that clicks. Sniff through the air with fancy tricks. In a
2: line and perfect your kicks They'll all call it town ballet Which it is But give it a name There's a name now it's gay
0: It's so sweet and it's very funny um, the, the piece is uh, As a whole Very heartening It feels so good um, there's a beautiful movement called Inside Voice. I'm so enamored with this piece. And one reason is its embrace of complexity. It's not telling happy stories or sad stories. It's telling deeply complex stories in every single movement. And so Inside Voice is a young trans kid talking about their relationship with their mom and that their mom isn't rejecting them. They're trying, but not quite getting it. And you know that the phrase "use your inside voice" I meaning don't be quite so loud. You know, stay 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 inside your lane, and how they're hearing that phrase with multiple meanings. you to be a little quieter to not really stand out but you want to use your own inside voice that voice that is inside you that needs to come out and it it's very complex and beautiful and then it closes the whole the whole work closes with almost a, a recap of that movement called outside voice you should be using your outside voice. Be loud and proud and exactly who you are and who you want to be and how, how this Generation Z is creating that space, not just for themselves, but for all who come after them.
1: Donald Milton III, artistic director of the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus, the world premiere of At Queer Z is this Saturday, October 15th, at the First Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech. More information is on our website, wabe.org citylights. Coming up, we'll examine art in the 1980s with Rosemary Cohane Earth and Craig Trennan. Amplifying Atlanta, this is W-A-B-E. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In the 1980s, conservatism prevailed in social, economic, and political life. Popular culture of the decade reflected and reacted to that conservatism as well. For many, the embodiment of the 80s was the yuppie a baby boomer with a college education, a good-paying job, and expensive taste. Art during that dynamic era is examined in new ways by the Atlanta-based scholar and curator Rosemary Cohane Earth. Her recent book is Painting in the 1980s, Reimagining the Medium, She joins us now with Atlanta-based artist and Georgia State University professor, Craig Drennan. Welcome to City Lights.
3: Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: Rosemary, please explain why you believe that painting in the late 20th century has been given short shrift.
3: Well, if you compare it to the first part of the 20th century, you have all the, the greats. You have uh, Monk, you, uh, you have Picasso, you have Matisse. And following that, you have all the great abstractionists, Mondrian, Malevich. And there's a lot to write about that because it wasn't at the beginning of modernism. And the late 20th century pop art, yes, it, it included painting, but not really as much as it was about these content with consumerism, popular culture. And then other movements were not so much centered on painting. We had a lot of non-painting movements, installation art, photography, video, and performance that, and minimalism took the stage. So... This, this painting resurgence in the 80s and painting that followed it has really not been discussed from a total art historical vantage point. And I thought that was a paucity in the literature, and I wanted to address it as we have just enough distance from that period to consider it an art historical micro period or period itself.
1: This volume is published by Intellect in partnership with the esteemed University of Chicago Press, serious academic cred. What readers did you have in mind when writing this book?
3: The book was written for anyone who loves art, and certainly art professionals, professors in the field and artists will find it very interesting. But my intention was to also write for non-art experts in a very readable, jargon-free style. Art historical tests can be obscure, bordering on the unintelligible at times, but without any previous knowledge of the topic. This book is, is clear and understandable. So I'm hoping that I draw in those readers who thought that contemporary art was sort of beyond their understanding and that art history left them cold I hope that would be this would be the book for those people as well
2: I want to add to that I've known Rosemary we met by chance uh, mm-hmm. at Long Island University back in the early 90s where we were both adjunct professors and we just started having long conversations in the slide library which was our de facto office but what I will say is as I read this book it seemed totally uh, Rosemary you know, because it's she can engage with people at any level they arrive with. And so this book, I would say it's for people with a little bit of knowledge of art, but also people with, with not much at all. And you're going to get a nice entry into contemporary painting in the 1980s. And I would say that the portal is very wide on this book. So I expect it to have a wide
1: readership. Fantastic. Historical periods, eras decades, work nicely in retrospect, but it's not like someone wakes up and says, ooh, it's a new decade or even a new century. I know historians sometimes consider the beginning of the 20th century post-World War I, 1918 or so, or maybe it's the outbreak of World War I. In any case, why is the year 1978 essential to understanding painting in the 1980s?
3: Well, I start there with that period because it is the first time, the end of the 70s, the first time that painting reasserts itself. And to paint in a figurative mold was a punishable crime in those days. <laughs> and so we have the new image painting show and I begin with that and talk about the reintroduction of painting of imagery and the way that is fused with other painting styles. And I think that's very important. And also I talk primarily about Susan Rothenberg who was in lower Manhattan in the seventies. And that, that crowd, that art group was what set the stage for the 80s, where art boomed and artists flocked to New York, many of them just out of art schools, which were on the rise then. And so you really have to start there. But the 80s has its own sort of charm and problems, as you mentioned, in terms of conservatism. But also it's a a decade that saw the art market Go from what it used to be to this mega industry, this uh, a lot of hype, a lot of uh, huge prices being uh, fetched at auction. They keep going up, but that was where it started and moved from a kind of local New York based or California based art scene to a global one.
1: Mm. <sighs> if I could bring in my own background, part of what was exciting for me in Reading about this aspect of the return of figurative representation and the daring that took. Because, what did you say, Rosemary? A punishable crime. I mean, (laughs) somehow, if you weren't dripping like Jackson Pollock or, you know, engaged in the most abstract expressionism, you were either not intellectual, or selling out, or even worse, a discredit to your field. And in music, there was something similar going on. After decades of what, in terms of sound, was the equivalent of abstract expressionism, on the cusp of the 1980s and then with fervor in the 1980s there was a return to tonality to music and melody that was original but it sounded good yeah. again <laughs> is is that a fair comparison to figurative representation
3: I liked it a lot. And I, and I like the fact that you bring up music because where the book starts is in the downtown New York scene and music and art were co-joined completely. But I think it is a good and apt one. Also, the, some of the new music coming out of punk genres and punk hybrids of other music in terms of popular music really was taking hold. And one short example, which I think is interesting, The artist, Peter Halley, who was originally born in New York and then took his degree in Yale and moved to New Orleans because he wanted to experience a very different kind of culture. He was very happy there. And he started listening to David Byrne and the Talking Heads, and he felt instinctively there was something in that music that spoke to him. And it was that that he became interested in what he heard about this new culture in lower Manhattan and the irony is, he moves to New York, he gets a little subterranean flat in a building way down the Lower East Side, and who is living above him but David Byrne?
1: Oh. His
3: intent had him in and they met once, hi, I'm David, hi, I'm Peter, and that was that, but, you know, and of course, in Basquiat's case, music was a really important factor, and, you know, it, it's a sort of subplot throughout the book.
1: If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with curator and author Rosemary Cohane Erf and artist Craig Drennan. We've been discussing Erf's new book, Painting in the 1980s, Reimagining the Medium, Craig, you were still a young student in the 1980s. Did painting by older or established artists in that decade influence your own work?
2: I would say yes. And I grew up way out in the country, in West Virginia, in a small town. And so my knowledge at that point about the art world was through Art Forum, Art in America, like the normal publications, And I was very interested in it. And it seemed, uh, you know, that's part of the reason I moved to New York, was probably seeing, you know, those articles and reading the descriptions of the work at that time. And it was exciting. And you did have all of these overlapping things happening. You had, the you know, the early days, the birth of uh, hip hop culture and graffiti culture and punk rock and all all these other types of painting that were being uh, resuscitated. Since Rosemary mentioned Peter Halley, I want to give a quick shout-out. Peter Halley's studio manager, Lauren Clay, from Alpharetta, Georgia, Hmm. uh, right here, uh, has been his studio manager for over a decade, I think, but a great artist in her own right. Shout-out to Lauren Clay.
1: (laughs) Rosemary mentioned a few names. Possibly the most famous or most recognizable for a general audience would be Basquiat, Were there other specific artists or ideas in the 80s while you were still a very young student that influenced your own artwork?
3: Yes. I was actually in New York, downtown Manhattan, where I had a gallery in the 80s. So I I saw it and I lived it. There were so many different kinds of art and there was the whole East Village thing. But it was a moment where... What I think is not mentioned enough. As the art market was growing, at that time Lower Broadway was, was growing and these old, what used to be industry, light industry buildings became malls of galleries. My gallery is on a ground floor, that was a plus. But you could, could take the elevator up, and on any floor you could get off and go to a gallery or two. So I I saw a lot of different kinds of work going on. And there was, as the art market was also uh, becoming a factor, and Reaganomics, there were a lot, of, a lot of disposable income at that time. So people started buying art. And to sell art, dealers like to label things. And so the term neo-expressionism or neo-conceptualism, neo-dada, all these kinds of terms came into play as well as the overarching term postmodernism. So there was all these these discussions about was this postmodern? Was it neo-expressionism? And as I show in the book, the artists just reject those labels completely. And it makes sense because as you'll see in the book, the key to all the artists at that time was the variety, the difference in both how the art looked and what they were trying to achieve. So, yes, there was many ideas being bandied about.
1: So you write that this book aims to excavate and analyze the art and ideas that shaped each artist's style. With so many active artists of the time, how did you decide who to include in your book?
3: Well my criteria was one thing, and that was originality. So you ask, what does that mean? In my book, I talk about the originality, which depends on the artist to imagine something that doesn't already exist. In a larger context, to place it in a larger context, the, the story of Painting's Resurgence in the 80s is told through each individual artist's exploration of the medium at that particular time. And each artist in a kind of symbiotic relationship between the making and the mind, which is sort of the lifeblood of painting, each artist really had to find a way to make it new for themselves in terms of the content, in terms of how the art was made, and in terms of how meanings can be derived or Brought to the to the painting, and that's where it's particularly interesting because the meanings are set up in a way that the participant, the viewer, is not given all the answers. You have to connect the dots and figure out what is he trying to say? What is this story about? Why does this painting, that's abstract, look like it's, it feels like a neon sign, but it wasn't? But it was made with oil paint. So yes, I loved further researching artists that i already knew but i i tend to over research everything so and then i really focused on what the artist's creative journey was and each one is very different and fascinating and this takes you to all sorts of inter- different narratives and backgrounds
1: hmm. craig from the perspective of a professional artist as well as an academic What aspects of Rosemary's book resonated with you?
2: Well, I like how it starts with 1978 because 78 was an important year. And as I mentioned, you had uh, hip hop really sort of leading the way in what will be uh, called appropriation, you know, with, with sampling and hip hop that later the art world seems to get on board with really quickly. But in 1978, there was a show at the Whitney Museum called New Image Painting. And basically it was for generations of painters who had grown up experiencing contemporary graphic design. So starting with like a blank surface of one color and putting a figure in the middle of it with no context necessary, suddenly that seemed innovative. And then uh, downtown in 78, the new museum hosted an exhibition called Bad Painting, which was just what it sounded like. Like (laughs) what what makes something bad and poor taste and et cetera. Like, why is that interesting? And all of these things kind of, you know, you could feel the rumblings back then that things are about to change. And so when painting, when, when the 80s really started rolling on and you had all these large, uh, expressive, thickly, densely uh, made paintings, I feel for, for a lot of the audience and certainly for museums and collectors, it was like a, you had a population who had been raised on conceptual art and minimalism and really sparse installations for the past 15 years and then suddenly they get this enormous glut of sensory experience and they just they just jumped on it right away like it became very exciting like very quickly
1: very much so. Craig you have ongoing literary inspiration with your time in Athens series based on Shakespeare's last play, Rosemary writes about the importance of other media, TV, comics, film, photography, conceptual art. Do any of those forms apply to your art as well?
2: Oh, definitely. And it was really important for me to see these artists like David Sally, Sigmar Polka, Ida Applebrook, someone who I really liked a lot in my early days, and still do. But uh, the idea that one artist could access an entire orchestra of effects, that you weren't limited, you know, to to maintain the analogy, you weren't limited to one instrument, uh, like maybe uh, some previous decades of art suggested. And so you could do everything, you could do anything. And I think that uh, the fact that, you know, Channel 7, Channel 8, and Channel 9 on your television don't have to relate to each other, even though they're side by side, when you look at a lot of contemporary art that uses, you know, multi-panel works or things that are, or, you know, collisions of images that are, that are juxtaposed together, that just, to me, that feels like, well, these people internalized uh, television on in a certain way. And I did too. And I, for my project, I want the full orchestra of effects for sure. And the literary part is huge for me. Thank you for mentioning that. But finding this abandoned, decrepit, Play by Shakespeare that was never published in his lifetime. To me, that seemed like a rich source. And what a lot of pain in the 80s did, and I, I guess I learned this too, is you know I, I found a subject matter that I know a little bit about with Shakespeare, but not a lot. And most of the audience is going to know they're going to recognize Shakespeare's name, but they they've never heard of *Time of Athens*. And so it becomes a place where me and the audience can meet. And, and I like that idea of using something that already exists in culture as a meeting place between the artist and the audience. And a lot, of, a lot of folks in the 80s, I think, did that you know extraordinarily well.
1: Mm. I love your description there. Timing and TV. There's some good alliteration. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> as
2: long as it's not timing on TV. Time.
1: <laughs> Rosemary, you explore aspects of European national identity in Italy and Germany in this book, I found the chapter on German artists in the 1980s especially powerful. Would you summarize how various German artists addressed what you call their country's post-war collective amnesia?
3: Yes, It was fascinating doing the research on artists such as Gerhard Richter and Sigmar Polk. Gerhard, there were many of them were infants or just children or born at the very end of the war. And Anselm Kiefer, for example, as an infant, his his grandparents used to take him into the, the forest, the German forest during the day to keep him safe from the barrage of bombs at the end of the war. And Growing up, and this is true for many, all of these, these German artists, they knew nothing of Nazism. There were no wars ever lost, and as older people, they became aware through one way or the other that this wasn't true. And so they, I believe, through the leadership of Joseph Boyce, who I address as sort of the godfather of our post-war German art, they were able to address these topics that couldn't be addressed through this collective amnesia. One term that's used is the, quote, inability to mourn nationally in Germany. And by doing so, and each in a different way, through materials, through imagery, each sort of brought it out into the open. The, The second thing about the German artists is because Hitler had destroyed all modern art in Germany. But he had the famous exhibition in Takata Kunst, Degenerate Art. And he showed all modernists and said it was, you know, it was anti-German. Be aware, be careful. And then he, you know, got rid of all the art, which is now, fortunately, many of it back in early modern German art. Many of it's back in the museums in Germany. So here's a young artist uh, after the war, and they are just learning for the first time about abstract expressionism. They're shocked that it, there could be an American movement that could take so much of, the, of this, the attention and the stage away from Europe. But they have no knowledge of their great German modernists, so they have no point of departure. So as they, as they learn about the history they really start from scratch and each one has to sort of invent their own style. They were very clear that they didn't want it to be derivative of a French style or an American style. Also they were painting during a time of a divided Germany and that's addressed in many of the artist's work. I love that chapter and tried to make it shorter because it's longer than any other and I said no can't make it shorter there's a lot to say here and I said it and in terms of Italy I had spent time in Rome at the American Academy I had a fellowship there and I researched the artists there of course Italian artists have a whole other problem you've got the history of Italian painting behind you which is so weighty that it's, it's it couldn't paralyze an artist how are you going to paint as well as the Baroque artists the Renaissance artists and such they also in italy went through periods of very conceptual art the art of povera group and such and performance art and and installation art so they finally just said you know the heck with it let's just let's just paint what we want and they really drew on their location parts of where they were from mimo paladina was from the campania region which is just rife with legends of death cults and sacrifices and rituals in caves and that shows up in his work.
2: I might add just a little uh, bit to that. I think the German example is very good because uh, it's, a, it's a case history we have where repression and denial won't work for a culture <laughs> and I think that in the American south they're dealing with that. So I, I think that uh, what, what Germany learned after the war about how to recuperate culturally and how to address history honestly is now being dealt with finally in the American South with some of the, you know, the monument removals and some of the questions about why are these monuments up to begin with? And, you know, in many cases, and I I agree with it, like, should they be taken down? And so I think that conversation that should have happened in the American South, maybe around 1890, we're just having now. So I think when I read the German section of the book, I was reminded of things going on in the South right now. So I think it's uh, as relevant as ever
1: artist, Craig Dranin with art historian and author, Rosemary Cohane Erf. We'll continue our conversation about Erf's new book, Painting in the 1980s, Reimagining the Medium, in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to my conversation with the art historian and author Rosemary Cohane Earth and artist Craig Drennan. We've been discussing Earth's new book, Painting in the 1980s, Reimagining the Medium. Here... Drennan explains how 1980s art influenced the art scene in Atlanta.
2: Well, I lived in New York through the 90s. I, mean, I was in the art school at the end of the 80s, so I saw the tail end of it then. I, mean, I made trips to New York while I was in graduate school at Ohio University. But I think that it did have an impact because I think there was an appetite. I'll go back to my earlier analogy, you know, with with If insulation art and minimalism and very sparse Spartan kinds of work were all that you were being served for 15 years or so and then suddenly you have the option for this really decadent seeming full (laughs) lush form of painting it would be as if you'd you've been served a diet of broth for 15 years and then suddenly <laughs> somebody's offering you lasagna and cupcakes.
1: Yeah. Oh, yum. <laughs> you know,
2: exactly. <laughs> and so I think there was, you know, on some level audiences were starved for that experience of just doing doing more of of again of going for that symphonic orchestral kind of effect. And so I think it was an easy sell uh, in the rest of the country. I will give credit though. I didn't live in Atlanta at this time, but I will give credit where it's due. Faye Gold did a lot to pull art of this era of the 80s into Atlanta, and she's the one that brought in uh, Basquiat for the first time. So big shout out to Faye Gold and all that she did for the Atlanta art world.
1: Uh, The role of the gallerist.
3: Yes, and the role of the museum. There are some wonderful examples at the High Museum of painting in the 80s. In fact, the work by Julian Schnabel, a painting reproduced in the book, is in the High Museum. And they purchased several really wonderful Gerhard Richter pieces, the abstracts that are discussed at length in my text. In the 90s, they purchased uh, those works. They also purchased a work by Peter Halley. So they were really early on collecting and exhibiting that work. There isn't a painter or an artist in, in Atlanta that's not familiar with them because of the eye early on.
1: Mm. Rosemary, I'd like to point out that you wrote this, your first book at age 75.
3: I know.
1: I know. Well, it's quite an inspiration, although 75
3: doesn't sound old
1: anymore.
3: Well, I feel I'm I'm always 23 in my brain.
1: So. <laughs> oh, you're ahead of me. I have a mental self-image of 18.
3: Okay. I was going to say 19, but I, I want oh, to sound not quite so adolescent. Well, I want to quote a friend of mine. She has a wonderful expression. She said, it was time to own what I knew. My whole background had led me to the the point at which I knew this was my book to write. Everything in my academic life was about painting. I wrote my thesis on a painter, my dissertation on a painter. And I worked downtown in Manhattan in the 80s. And then I was director of Marion Goodman Gallery, where she had and I got to know on a first-hand basis the paintings by the great German post-war painters. And then at SCAD, I taught a course, Punk Photography and Painting, the downtown art world of the 80s. And I needed this book. And so I said, I better write it. But I never thought of it. Am I too old to write it? I just, it was a passion. I've always had a passion for painting. And it, it was fascinating to me. So I, I thought, well, maybe... You know, the art history needs to be written about this era. And I found as an art historian, you always start with the first text on something. If you're, if you're using a Renaissance, you start with Vasari. So I, I was excited about the fact that this would be the first text on this topic and then of artists all in one place. There are many books on individual artists, but not one that really covers the, the breadth of what happened. So, yeah, I just kind of ignore the numbers and I still do.
1: Art historian, curator, and author Rosemary Cohane Earth with artist Craig Drennan. More information about Earth's new book, Painting in the 1980s, Reimagining the Medium, is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the Claude Monet Immersive Experience, which opens Saturday at the new Exhibition Hub Arts Center in Doraville. If you missed part of today's show, like our earlier story about the upcoming world premiere of At Queer Z from the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus. You can catch up through our podcast or on our website, wade.org slash City Lights. There you'll find a complete archive of our story so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves, Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta.